Our scripture passage for this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 22, as we read verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of God. <clears throat> David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about four hundred men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are a God who loves all your people. You even love the ones that we sometimes consider unlovable. In fact, we know that you do because you loved us, and you sent Christ for us. And so we ask you to show your love to us again this evening as we look to David and as we begin to see the results of his suffering here tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite movies when I was a kid, and I say when I was a kid, but it's still true, I think, as a grown-up, uh, is the movie The Goonies. And it's this movie about these kids who live in Astoria, Oregon, and they and they go on this adventure and sort of and find pirate treasure, and it's great fun, and I just love it. I love the Goonies, and uh, and when we we were in Oregon back in June, one of the things I, I made sure that we did as a family was that we went to Astoria and we went to some of the locations where they filmed uh, the movie, which was a big nerdy deal to me, um, and uh, I think my kids. My kids, I don't really know that they were as excited as I was. But one of the themes of the Goonies is that these losers sort of, <clears throat> they sort of gather together. Uh, and meanwhile, these, these the, you know, the wealthy, cool, popular, put together people in town sort of end up despising and rejecting them. And in this passage, we sort of have a group of Goonies getting together as well. Uh, these, these, sort of, these sort of goonies, these sort of losers, all sort of gathered together around the anointed King David. We meet three types of people in the narrative. First, we meet the rejects. Second, we meet the Moabites. And then third, we meet the prophet. This is only in five verses, so there's a lot packed in here. Uh, but each of the three groups that we meet has a different posture and a different response to David, but all of them play an important role in one form or another in David's life here. And so this evening, just very briefly, we'll look at all three. I mean, first, first, we meet the rejects. We meet the rejects. Look one more time just at the first two verses, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So David was in Gath. He leaves there and goes back toward Israelite territory about 10 miles east. And, 
his family comes and they join him. Now, one of the things Robert Bergen points out in his commentary on 1 Samuel, which I just recommend to anybody looking for a good commentary on 1 Samuel, it's wonderful. Uh, but Robert Bergen reminds us that this is probably not his family finally getting behind him and really giving him this full uh, inspirational support. Instead, this move on their part is probably self-preservation um, because think of the uncertainty of the situation. Who knows if Saul is going to come after them or use them as a tool to try to destroy David. They are just in a very precarious situation. It makes the most sense for them to go with David. Now, along with this, with this sort of, with his family though, is this rough sounding group of misfits. And verse two tells us they were everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in Saul. Now, it's hard to perfectly explain what makes David so magnetic to these people, but it seems to be at least the case that, that they see David as sort of a, a kindred spirit. Um, they are the rejects. They are the losers. They are the ones who don't belong. And they see David has been cast out as well. David attracts the rejects of Jerusalem, right? This, this messianic figure, this Messiah figure, doesn't draw the respectable folks from those high places of high society. Instead, he ends up being this draw for the downtrodden people in Israel. It's worth remembering that the gospel is not a message that is intended only for successful people on the upper crust of society. In fact, those folks, when they're presented with the gospel, tend to be pretty self-satisfied. They tend to miss out on their need for the Savior in the first place. They tend to enjoy their weekend vacations and their trips rather than spending time in church, right? It's people in distress who realize that things are wrong in their world. It's people who are in distress that realize something needs to change in my soul and in my life. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that God really does flip the tables on us when it comes to reversing our expectations. What does Paul say? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So looking at the Gospels, Jesus was drawn to beggars, to thieves, to prostitutes. And as he was drawn to them, he was also lumped in with them, right? And so people started to say, ah, he spends time with drunkards. He is a drunkard. Right? He, he didn't pass as a respectable member of society. When he wasn't around, the fancy people gossiped about Jesus. Probably because he didn't care what they thought. He did not seem to have ever asked himself the question, but what will people say about me? Christian, how much time do you spend asking yourself, but what will people say about me? We've got to be careful as a church. We have to be careful of hoping that the put-together folks with the good, stable jobs will be the ones who come to our church. There's nothing wrong with wanting all kinds of people to come to church, but I think in our worst moments, we may have to admit that we like to have the clean folks, the respectable folks, the people who are already doing great, the people who maybe as a church we think, well, they're lower maintenance. Are we guilty of thinking that way? 
Are we, th- are we seeking out those who are foolish? Are we seeking out those who are poor in the sight of the world? This, that, that really is David's intention. That's who came to David here. We have to be actively and intentionally avoiding the temptation to think that. Think of our church as a place that attracts the acceptable and stable members of society. The gospel is for those who are sick. The gospel is not for those who need no physician. It's hard to think that way. It's not our instinct. So we meet, we meet the losers. We meet the rejects. We meet the goonies here, this first group. The second tonight, we meet the Moabites. And this happens in verses 3 and 4. I'll, I'll read those one more time. It says, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, let, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now remember, the Moabites are a people group outside of Israel. They are supposed to be the enemies of Israel. They are not the friends of Israel. However, in the ancient Near East, there was a general policy that if you were the king, you would help the enemy of your enemy. You've heard Sun Tzu's Uh, Famous maxim, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, that's kind of the practice here. In this case, he he might not like David. Someday he may even find himself at loggerheads with David. But he also wants to undercut Saul. Because Saul is the current head of state in Israel. Domestic conflict is generally the best in the best interest of foreign adversaries. We've seen this in the last few years in the United States. We have foreign adversaries who realize they're not going to topple the United States by sending armies in. All they have to do is foment distress. Cre- create a Facebook campaign where all Americans hate one another and are driven further and further apart from one another, right? You, if you sow domestic discord, you are at a strategic advantage over your enemy. Um, we see this all the time in our own world. You know, in, our, in the past, our own nation has supported the domestic enemies of foreign governments because we recognize that there is some benefit in the enemy being tied up with some other adversary who isn't us? This is, this is old policy. This same principle is at play here. The king of Moab agrees to protect David. We have really no idea how long David was living among the Moabites, but it must have been long enough to be noteworthy. Because verse 4 says his family stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, We don't know how long that is. That could have been a few days. It could have been a few hours. It could have been a few months and weeks, and it could have been a few months. We don't particularly know. And one possible factor, we we need to consider this. Yes, the king of Moab may have been helping David because it would be to his advantage to help Saul's enemy. But there may be another factor in why the king of Moab uh, let David's family take shelter there. I want you to remember who David's great-grandmother is. David's great-grandmother is Ruth, who was a Moabite. David has Gentile blood flowing through his veins. David has Moabite blood flowing through his veins. So it, it may possibly be that the Moabites had a sense of duty 
Maybe they felt a sense of duty to support this man who had family ties to them. At the very least, I think we could say it didn't hurt David and his family to have this connection. Think of what this may be illustrating for us about the providence of God. I just think this is remarkable to think about. You've heard of the butterfly effect, maybe? The butterfly effect says that the flapping of a single butterfly's wings has an impact on the world around it, which changes the landscape, which ends up changing the world and in ways that we can't even anticipate or understand. Well, there's an important reminder here tonight. We can never understand the impact of even small events. Think, of, think, think back to the book of Ruth. You have Elimelech who, who flees from Israel during, during a, a famine. Uh, he goes to Moab with his wife Naomi. Uh, they have two sons. After a few years, he, he dies. Elimelech dies. Uh, Naomi struggles greatly. Uh, her sons both marry. Uh, her sons both die. She's left with two daughters-in-law. And eventually, Naomi ends up coming back. To Israel with her daughter-in-law Ruth the Moabite. She leaves with a husband. She comes back with a Moabite. And the result of, to make a long story short, Ruth ends up marrying Boaz. The result of her marriage to Boaz was the child Obed, who was David's grandfather. In fact, if Jesse is one of the people who ends up staying with the king of Moab, then it's actually his grandfather. So all of those events that happen in the book of Ruth are, are painful and they're, they're difficult. And the book does end with, with uh, Naomi holding this child and seeing the results of her suffering and seeing the results of her pain. But, but she doesn't really see what happens. Because at the time, who could have guessed what good God was going to bring from those things? If you had asked Naomi, so venture a guess what God is doing right now, Naomi would have said, I have no idea. I'm just glad I'm holding this child. And not even just the child, but the fact that later on, this child's great-grandson, or this child's grandson, would end up being kept alive. Because of his Moabite connection and eventually would become king. Who but God could plan something like that in all of its intricacy? God's providence is like that. His providence is purposeful, but also inscrutable. And often only seen generations later. Can you think of the things happening in your life right now that you think, oh, this is awful. You don't know what it's going to be, and generations later it may show up. What is the suffering that you are enduring right now that you say, I, I cannot see what's happening, I can't see through it, I can't explain it, and I can't discern what God is doing. I don't know why this is happening. What is the suffering in your life right now? What is the challenge that you're facing right now? Are there medical problems, financial problems? Are you personally struggling with depression or sorrow or loneliness? Are you troubled by the world's events? I have no way of telling you what God will do with those things. 
I don't know how all of these things are going to play out generations later. I, I do think right now that this is such a historic and strange season now. We're almost six months into this pandemic, and here we are. And all I can tell you is something is happening, and the world will not look the same coming out of it. I have no way of telling you what God will do with those things. But here it, here it is. The difference between hope and hopelessness is knowing that God always does what is right. And God will do what is right even in your hardest providences. That is something that a hopeful person knows. A hopeless person doesn't believe that. A hopeless person doesn't know or believe or is not convinced that God's going to do anything here necessarily. Christians of all people have reasons for hope even in dark times. Naomi witnessed the pain, but not necessarily the fruit of the pain. It was only seen generations later. This should remind us that we need to have a long-term vision of God's providence as well. So we see the Moabites. Third tonight, we meet the prophet. His name is Gad. Look in verse 5. It says, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. So this fellow Gad uh, seems to be a lifelong companion of, of David. We see him come up repeatedly throughout the text of Scripture. Uh, later on in 2 Samuel 24, he's present again to warn David of a violation of God's will. Uh, we also find out in 2 Chronicles 29 that he produced and recorded a record of the life of David. So here he is. Uh, 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 he's still around even after David's time is over. He seems to be a loyal man. He sticks with David throughout his life, but, but he's also not afraid to say the hard thing when David needs to hear it. And David needs to hear hard things right now, right? Because here's, it turns out, this whole plan of, of hiding out in Moab, it turns out God has spoken on this issue. Um, Gad doesn't even need a special revelation in this case. Deuteronomy 23, 2-6 forbids a treaty with the Moabites. So God comes to David and he tells David, you can't stay in Moab anymore. And if you stay in Moab, you're going to be in violation of God's law. Because God's word is clear and God's word is true and God's word is right. You have to leave. Keep in mind, God doesn't say something about every decision that you have to make. The Bible doesn't tell you what to have for breakfast, right? <laughs> I don't think it does anyway. Um, but whenever the Bible does speak, we as Christians have to have a duty to listen, and we have to obey, and we have to be eager to do what God says. Our obedience can't be half-hearted. It can't be reluctant. Instead, we need to be eager to live life the way that God says that we should live. So you may have plans. You may have ideas about what you would like to do. And your plans might be expedient. They might be helpful. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's okay. We can get so hung up on being pragmatic that we can find ourselves excusing sinful actions because we think it helps us in the long term. 
these little moments of breaking God's law and making these little compromises end up growing out of control over time. We've seen that in Saul's life. We saw that in Saul's life. He, he excuses all these little sins. And every single time, you can just picture what he says to himself. Oh, this is a little thing. This is a little thing. Why are you making such a big deal out of this, God? And eventually, Saul is an absolute mess. He let the garden grow out of control and did not weed the garden. Um, sin is like that. And so Gad decides to speak up. And by the way, leaders need that. Pastors need that. Uh, politicians need that. Anyone who finds themselves in a position of leadership. Presidents of companies need that. You need someone who is willing to, to tell you the truth, even if it's hard. They, leaders need people who don't just approve and rubber stamp everything they do and everything they say. And, and really, don't we all need people in our lives who love God enough and love God's word enough that they'll refuse to flatter us all the time? The best friend you will ever have is the person who will really tell you exactly what is true, even when they know you won't like it. That takes courage. That takes bravery because no one wants to be rejected. Everybody wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be liked. It's, it's hard to be the person bringing hard news to somebody saying, hey, something's wrong here. Gad has to know what he's doing here, right? He is telling David that he needs to leave the security of the stronghold. It makes complete, complete sense to be in a stronghold. It makes complete sense to be basically in a castle, right? And, and Gad comes to him and he's telling him that he needs to leave the human security of this fortress. He is calling David to a painful obedience that, that doesn't seem to have very many short-term gains attached to it. Notice what David does. David listens to God's word, and David responds immediately. How responsive are you to God's word? When you realize that you're disobeying, are you quick to change your ways when you notice that God has shown you that you're being disobedient? Or do you fight? Do you, do you argue? Do you lawyer your case, right? Do you make excuses for your behavior? How do you respond when you are confronted by God? I have, throughout my life, definitely made excuses for resisting the clear commands of God from his word. Have you? You found yourself making excuses for yourself. Ways that you think before the court... You can defend yourself. Well, let, let's be encouraged by what appears to be a quick readiness by David to change his direction and change his life when he finds out that he's not in step with God's will. Part of what the Bible is here for is to show you how you're out of step with God's will, not whether you're out of step with God's will, because you will be. There are ten commandments, and there's a whole lot of scripture here. And the point of this book is not to affirm you and tell you that everything about you is great. Each of us needs to know how we're out of step with God's will, not whether we're out of step with God's will. I want to point something else out that sort of amplifies this moment, right? It's not like 
It's not like uh, David changes one plan that doesn't really work for another plan that, well, it ends up being a whole lot better. Think about what he does. He was in a fortress. What does he exchange the fortress for? He goes into a forest instead. He goes to the forest of Herod. David leaves a fortress made by human hands, and he goes to a forest made by divine hands. He is giving up stability. He is giving up comfort. And instead, David gives up a human stronghold and moves to a forest. His obedience is compounded because it ends up being costly obedience. Obeying God leads to more discomfort, not less discomfort. I have known Christians, in fact, people in this church even, who gave up good jobs because the work would have required them to compromise with God's word. Obedience comes at a cost. There will be times where you have to give up a plan that, that, that makes a great deal of worldly sense, but it violates God's law somehow. And in that moment, you may have to do something that makes no earthly sense because obeying God is more important than doing what your flesh has a great excuse for. The point here is David is a model of responding quickly and clearly to God's word, even when it seems costly up front. Before Saul pursues and tries to kill David, David has no followers. This is what's so interesting and almost paradoxical about Saul's pursuit of, of David. He has no soldiers. He has no people devoted to him. He only ever serves as an underling to Saul. But then Saul persecutes David. David goes into exile. And that is when he begins to come into his own and exist as an independent power. And suddenly he becomes a real threat to Saul. Only after Saul exacerbates the situation and drives him away. He drives him away when he's no threat. The next time he sees David, David is a threat. And so what we see is that exile ends up being God's tool to empower and exalt David. He's on his first step to ascend to the kingship here. He has this, he has this band of people... But they only follow him once he is cast out. Do you notice that? It's only after he's cast out that he becomes appealing to them. You see, in David's life, suffering is the tool that God uses to elevate David. Suffering ends up being the path to glory. This is the same for Jesus. What happened to Jesus? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians, he says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. David pictures Christ here for us tonight. There's only one way for David to get to the throne, and that's exile, to be cast out. There's only one way for him to become the true king of Israel, and that is suffering. And there is no Christ without the cross. Christian, you don't serve or follow a Savior who cannot sympathize with your temptations and sufferings. 
You follow one has, who has been through the dirt and through the mud and through the sorrows of life. Only then could he be exalted to his place of glory. Let's pray. We do admit, O oh God, that we have a tendency of judging by outward appearances, of being drawn to those who are most like us, of being drawn to those who seem to have it a little more together. And yet you built David's kingdom in many ways, using people that had been forgotten or who were annoyances to the establishment. Would you make us a people who not only love others, but who love others because of the love of your son, Jesus Christ, who's pictured for us in the suffering of David tonight. Your son, who now sits at your right hand, exalted and glorious. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.